Let us begin our Monday Thursday sermon with prayer. Gracious Lord, as we celebrate your institution of Holy Communion, we ask you to work through the words of today's sermon that we may understand how gloriously you nourish us in this meal and how simple you have made it for our understanding. Let us not go astray in understanding the wonderful blessings you provide for us in Holy Communion, but let us receive them with the childlike faith that believes your words of institution and clings to them as your unchangeable promise. Amen. Our text for our sermon is the gospel history as recorded by the evangelist Luke in chapter 22, verses 14 through 20. When the hour had come, Jesus reclined at the table with the 12 apostles. He said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He took a cup, gave thanks, and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is being poured out for you. This is the gospel history of our Lord. God created the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and its very existence gave Adam and Eve, and it would have given their children, knowledge of good and evil. To eat of it would be evil. To not eat of it is good. One commandment, that simple. And every day they didn't eat of it, they were worshiping God because they were obeying, it, obeying him. Now, that tree was actually not meant for food. And we're told in Genesis chapter 3, when Eve bought into the devil's lie, she saw that it was good for food. That was a lie. It was not good for food. It was not meant to be food. But what happens after they fall? They end up having to isolate themselves in a weird way because before their nakedness, it was not a sexual perversion it was to their glory. And now they looked at each other in weird ways. And so they, have, they make clothes out of fig leaves to isolate themselves from each other because now they had privies and it was embarrassing to see each other that way. And God, the benevolent God who had made all the world for them, who came down every day and walked with them, talked with them. When he comes down, they intentionally isolate themselves from God by running and hiding from him. And so it is that God had told them, when you eat of it, you will surely die. And they spiritually died. And because of that, they isolated themselves and they would suffer physical death. As we continue our sermon series this Lent season, Christ overcomes death for us. And we look at the institution of that meal, the Lord's Supper. We see that he overcomes its isolation and its starvation. Now, we need to recognize that sin isolates us from God. And a very clear passage of that is Romans 8, verse 7. It says, For the mindset of the sinful flesh is hostile to God, since it does not submit to God's law, and in fact, it cannot. Now, even believers have a sinful nature, and that sinful nature is hostile to God. But we have a new man, a new person, that is not hostile to God. It is God's child. But that sinful nature, all it can do is hate God, hate his word. It's hostile to him. It isolates us from him. And 
it will starve our new person. It'll say, don't you dare drag me to that word of God. Don't you dare drag me to a worship service. Don't you dare drag me to that Lord's Supper because it's poison to the sinful nature. The word of God tortures the sinful nature. And sadly, we see what happens as we look in the Old Testament when so many, not every one of them, but so many of the Israelites became apostate. As Isaiah records in chapter 59, verse 2, no, it is your, that's the plural, so we could say you guys's guilt that has separated you from your God and your sins have hidden God's face from you so that he does not hear. People who have the word of God can let their sinful nature win out and it will isolate them and starve them from the true word of God and then they're separated from him. But I think the greatest image of all in all of the Bible that our sins separate us, isolate us from God is the curtain that was in the temple. Once a year, one person, and he had to be bathed in blood before he could walk into that holiest of holies. He had to, and he even had to be the right person. He had to be the high priest. Anybody else who walked in there would be struck dead. They'd be destroyed. And even the high priest, when he walked in, the Jewish people, uh, the other priests, had, would tie a rope to him in case he was struck dead. They could at least pull his body out. That temple curtain tells us, no, you who are unholy cannot approach a holy God. His holiness will destroy you. So sin isolates us from God. And the sad thing is when you're isolated from God, you're isolated from all of his blessings. As Adam and Eve ran to hide from God, refusing to see him as benevolent, as their loving Lord at that point. And as long as that separation continues, the soul, your soul, my soul, if it's isolated from God, can have no rest. And the final outcome is the ultimate isolation from God being abandoned in all eternity by God in the flames of hell. And the really sad thing is, some people think they know shortcuts to this. When the atheist screams out, I do not believe in you to God. I've heard interviews with them and they say, how dare you claim a God is holy and expect this or that from me. But you know, the truth of the matter is, if I walk out in the middle of a busy freeway and deny there's cars on it, at some point in time, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, reality's gonna hit me, most likely like a semi, or a car, full-size truck, whatever. And even the atheist denial of God is truly just trying to say, I don't want there to be a hell. I don't want to be accountable. And I think one of the saddest stories that we see in the Bible of somebody isolating themselves from God is Judas. Now we can't say with certainty, but it appears that Judas actually went out to, to, to go gather up the, the people that, we, that he would use when he would betray the Lord. He went out to get them before Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, but the Bible doesn't tell us that. So he may have been there at the Lord's Supper, but he got to be a disciple. He got to hear everything from Jesus. And yet when he makes his plan, he has to isolate himself from Jesus. Jesus even lets him know, you can't hide this from me. He gives him an opportunity to repent, but he isolates himself. He doesn't want to hear it. And so separate from Jesus, separate from the disciples, he goes off and betrays the Lord. Now, the really sad thing is, he would not return to the Lord 
and hear the good news of forgiveness. Instead, he did the ultimate act of isolating himself. Not trusting in forgiveness at all, he hung himself. Now, he didn't go to hell because he hung himself. He went to hell because he was an unbeliever and because of his unbelief, he hung himself. But the sad result of that is he sealed his fate and made it so that he could not receive forgiveness. The other disciples at the Garden of Gethsemane, when Judas came to betray him with the soldiers and everything who were there to arrest him, they ran in fear for their lives. Peter would deny the Lord three times. But when Jesus rose from the grave and, and he appears to the women and they go, the disciples are meeting together. They didn't isolate themselves. And when they heard of the resurrection, even Thomas, who doubted, would find himself before the Lord. They turned to each other for comfort. They turned to the Lord and they repented. The isolation of our sinful nature will damage us. And so Jesus, as we hear, even in this meal, that night he's going to be betrayed, that morning he's going to be on the cross taking an isolation for you and I. But we're told in verse 15, he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus takes this special meal with his disciples, really drawing them together in a wonderful meal, before he's gonna be isolated and, and literally abandoned by God on the cross. He's not gonna celebrate that Passover meal again until he returns and we celebrate that feast, the great victory uh, of Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords when he gives us our new and glorified bodies. And he says the same thing about the wine. He says in verse 17, he took a cup, gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And so we will celebrate tomorrow night Christ in isolation laid in a tomb. Christ hung on the cross for your and my sins. Uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Totally being abandoned and isolated so that you and I would not have to deal with the isolation. So that you and I will know we don't need to do what Judas did so that you and I would not be isolated. Christ was abandoned for us in our place. Now, he institutes this meal as a way to unify us, and we're gonna get into that because, uh, here in just a second. But one of the things I wanna point out is after he instituted this meal and Judas has left to go betray him for certainty, he continues talking with the disciples and that has been, that conversation has been our, our sermon texts for all the other sermons prior to tonight as recorded in John 13, 14, and 15. But in John chapter 15, he tells that wonderful story. I am the vine, you are the branches. See, when... When we are brought to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit has brought us to faith by giving birth to a new person so that we believe the message of Jesus Christ. And when we're united to him, that new person, well, now it's never alone. Physics doesn't understand this. Science can't, can't understand this. It's beyond this world. But our new person is engrafted to Christ in Christ. The sap of Christ flows through it so that it bears fruit, good fruit. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you are Christ, 
But we are all each individual members of the body of Christ, his church, and his sap flows through us, so our new man is connected to Christ in a mysterious union. And when we partake of the Lord's Supper, as he says, this is my body, this is my blood, and the way he states it in the Greek grammar, you are getting bread and body, wine and blood. He doesn't say this becomes, but when we get that, think about that. You are receiving the very body and blood that overcame death for you, that overcame isolation, that overcame abandonment, so that you are now always with Christ. You're always connected with him. So when you take of the Lord's Supper, you have a vertical union, for you are receiving Christ's body and blood. Now, our God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Son. Neither one of them are the Holy Spirit. He and the Holy Spirit is neither the Father or the Son. But they are one God. They have a union that we can't understand this on this side of eternity. But they are one God with three persons. So when you partake of the Lord's Supper, you have a vertical relationship. You're not just receiving the body and blood of Christ because he is one God with the Father and the Holy Spirit. So it strengthens your relationship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit when you partake of the Lord's Supper. But there's another relationship there. And that's, we call it the horizontal relationship. As you are a member of the body of Christ, your relationship in that body is strengthened as well. And so the biggest passage of this, you know, the Lord saw to it that Matthew, Mark, and Luke record on the Lord's Supper. And then the Apostle Paul records on the Lord's Supper in a portion of chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians and a portion of chapter 11. And that's it. It's really simple. This is my body. This is my blood. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 through 17, Paul adds something. He says... The cup of blessing that we bless. Now, there were four cups that were celebrated during the Passover meal. In the third cup, there was a blessing that was said. They, 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 they praised the Lord. And since they called it the cup of blessing, we know that it was that third cup when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, that third drink out of wine. It was kind of a toast, but to, uh, in praise to God. So the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a communion? Now, the Greek word used for communion very literally be translated a joint partaking. So a joint partaking of the blood of Christ. When we take the, the, the wine, it is a communion. It's in communion with, it's a joint partaking also of the blood of Christ. They're in communion with each other and we jointly partake of it with the brothers and sisters in Christ that are there with us. He says, the bread that we break, is it not a communion, again, a joint partaking of the body of Christ? Christ's body is in communion with the bread and we are jointly partaking of it. We're in communion with each other, that horizontal union when we partake of the body and blood of Christ. And so he says in verse 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So here, Christ not only overcomes the isolation by giving us this meal that strengthens our vertical relationship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but he strengthens our horizontal relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ, the body of Christ. Now in verse 19, we're told, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we're supposed to be remembering Jesus when we partake of this. But again, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, gives us a wonderful commentary on that. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim 
the Lord's death until he comes. You are saying the Lord died for me. The Lord died for our sins. Christ overcomes death for us by overcoming its isolation and starvation, overcoming its isolation by being isolated for us and by unifying us with himself and with each other. But we also see he's overcoming its starvation. Adam and Eve thought that tree of knowledge of good and evil was good for food. It was not meant to be food and they would suffer death. And now we fear death. It's unnatural to us. God did not create us to die. And it's amazing how many of our fears, if you trace them, actually, if you follow them through, are fear of death. I lost my job. Oh boy, how am I gonna pay the bills? I'm gonna starve to death. I'm losing my home. I lost it in a fire. I don't have body, I don't have things for my body to, to cover and protect it. I'm gonna starve to death. In fact, when you read the accounts of people who have kept a journal and almost starved to death and get rescued, or sadly, even those who did starve to death, it's not the kind of death I want to have. Of course, I can name lots of deaths I don't want to have. In fact, I really would just prefer that I get to be the last generation along with you when Christ returns. But Christ overcomes death for us by overcoming its starvation with a very nourishing meal. Let's look at verse 19 through 20. He took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after the supper saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is being poured out for you. Here's where we really know there's something special here. The blood's poured out for us for forgiveness. He uses two earthly elements that nourish. Remember in those days, they didn't have refrigeration and, and the, the alcohol and wine killed a lot of bacteria that normally would kill people but they were very common. Bread, the most common staple, it nourished people. Wine, it gave people, it quenched their thirst. So we get to hear in this sermon right now as I'm reading the word, we get to hear how Christ overcomes isolation and starvation of death for us. But you know what? Whenever somebody shares the good news of salvation in Christ with you, you get to hear it. And when you open up the word of God and you read it, or when you do devotions that are faithful to the word of God, you get to see the forgiveness of sins. You get to see that, that you don't need to die uh, spiritually. And you get to, when you're hearing the word and when you're reading it, you are also nourishing that new person that is connected to Christ in mysterious union and connected to his body. But isn't it amazing? When you partake of the Lord's Supper, the Lord has given you yet another sense in which you get to be nourished, literally through the sense of taste. We sing in one of our liturgies, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And you get to do that. You get to literally digest forgiveness. You are nourishing your soul. In fact, when I teach this to people who are new to the faith, I tell them the Lord's Supper is literally soul food. It is food for the soul because just like when you hear the gospel, when you read the gospel, you're nourishing your soul. When you receive the Lord's Supper, you are also nourishing your soul, receiving the forgiveness of sins because you receive the very body and blood that were spilled and sacrificed so that you and I could be forgiven. And while when we take it, there's, there's obviously we're proclaiming the Lord's death that we trust in that, but it also then turns around and with the nourishment, it reminds us that Christ's death means we're forgiven and alive in him. 
brothers and sisters in Christ. That tree was not meant for food and it had harm. Christ has established some instructions. If you were just listening to the part of the sermon until I stopped here, you might say, so everybody should come and take the Lord's Supper. But when you read, especially in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you find out that the Corinthians were doing things that were not pleasing to the Lord. And he actually set an example of them and let some of them suffer death. Many got sick, but some even ultimately suffered death because they were abusing it. Just like that tree, the knowledge and good and evil, it had a good intention. But if it was misused, then it had bad consequences. The Lord's Supper, if somebody doesn't believe Christ's body and blood is there, somebody is not in unity with us in the confession that we have in standing on the word of God, if, they, if they're an unbeliever, they can take it to their detriment. But the amazing thing is, when a person is instructed in the faith and understand what they're receiving and taking it wanting the forgiveness of sins, it actually strengthens their faith. It helps them remember that Christ has died for their sins. It literally lets them be nourished with the forgiveness of sins as they receive the very body and blood that was given for them. And therefore, it takes care of the starvation of our sinful nature. Our sinful nature would want us to stay away, but it, it nourishes our new man. And so we see Christ overcomes death for us, overcoming its isolation and starvation. Overcoming its isolation because Christ Christ was isolated, abandoned for us, and then he's unified us with himself and all of God's children with each other, and he overcomes its starvation by giving us this nourishing meal that literally gives us the forgiveness of sins. Amen. And now you are blessed because you are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. Amen.